Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. should be that very first page of the New Testament uh, there. And there's a pew Bible at the end of the pew if, uh, if one would be helpful for uh, you. As you turn there, we are, of course, in our uh, Advent season as a church family. And I'm thankful for this, uh, not only as a time when we can really meditate, consider the amazing work that's been done in this incarnation, just, just be mind-boggled in worship, if you will, with that reality, but also uh, hopefully a time when we can consider the meaning of that for each one of us. Uh, last week, uh, our own Brandon Robbins uh, helped us as we looked at a passage from Philippians and considered the full humanity of Christ and what that means for us, its implications. Uh, this week, I want to look at this passage, and, and it's going to, to, to roll into some familiar territory for us, but I'm actually going to start in some less familiar territory with the very beginning of this book in the genealogy section. And, you know, I've got to confess, us, us pastors, we uh, tend to avoid this part because of the, the somewhat more winsome uh, message about mangers and shepherds and little babies and so forth uh, that always draws our attention. And, of course, we're going to get to some of that today and plenty of that in the weeks to follow. Uh, but I realize there's some really important truths that if we just slow down for a minute, we might not catch it right off the bat. I'll help us to, to kind of see it. So don't worry about that. But if we'll slow down for a minute and read just a few verses, we're not going to read the whole genealogy at the beginning of Matthew. We're going to see something powerful about this line, this genealogy that on the human side through Joseph uh, comes into this holy family. And I think it'll be at once uh, challenging and also refreshing for us, especially as we look to what Christ does can do for each one of us. So I invite you to stand as I read aloud and you read along silently. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 through 6 and then jump down to uh, 16 to 24. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon of Salmon, and the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife Uriah. And jumping down with me to verse 16, and it concludes, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon, to Christ, 14 generations. Now the familiar part. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child 
from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, talking about Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You may be seated, and as you do, let me pray again for us. Father, we ask that you'd open our eyes, unstop our ears to hear good things from you today and allow us to take them and work them into our lives, our hearts, our beliefs. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we think of the Christmas time, uh, several noteworthy seasonal characters come to mind, don't they? St. Nicholas, a certain caribou with a rosy schnoz, Jimmy Stewart, perhaps, and then maybe the most famous seasonal Christmas character of all, at least in our own time, Cousin Eddie. Cousin Eddie. Now, I can't say that I would recommend all the content of the Christmas Vacation movie and probably better to watch the one on TV that's shown on regular TV, but probably most of us have sampled a little bit of that particular film, uh, Chevy Chase's Christmas Vacation. And it's an interesting one for us to look at in light of our passage because a lot of Clark W. Griswold's adventures and attempt to have a good family Christmas revolve around the arrival of the not-so-welcome Cousin Eddie. Uh, whether it's him showing up in his uh, uninvited, beat-up RV and parking it in the driveway, or his uh, emptying of the sewer from the RV into the sewer, or whether it's his shopping list that's alphabetical and prepared, ready in hand, as soon as Clark offers to provide some Christmas gifts for their family, or his ill-advised kidnapping of Clark's boss at the end of the film. Cousin Eddie is a blight on the Griswold family genealogy. And as we sit here today and think about him, we may begin to roll through our mind the Cousin Eddies in our own genealogy, in our own family. Or maybe we're well aware that we are the Cousin Eddie in our own family line. But it's interesting if we are willing 
to read these first few verses of Matthew before we get to this good, wonderful, wholesome, delightful stuff of Christmas that we usually meditate on, we'll come to the reality that Jesus is looking to fix the human family. He's looking to correct the pathway, the trajectory, the flaw, the brokenness, the lostness of our human genealogy, of humanity. That's what his mission is. And I think this passage, Matthew, with great intentionality, is trying to highlight this for us. I'm going to unravel it for you as we walk through this first part of the passage, but I think the main idea we'll get is this, that if we keep an eye this Christmas season towards our guilty genealogy, not just our individual family, but the whole of humanity and our lost condition outside of Christ, then we should respond with, with even greater vigor and enthusiasm to the promises of God that are fulfilled in Christ. And we're going to see a little taste of that after this genealogy in Joseph. Take a look with me back at verse 1 again of Matthew, and let's walk through this lineage This uh, horrendous heredity, if you will. You know, the Bible is uh, filled with folks, and I don't mean to take away anything from the people in this genealogy, the significant things they did in the faith and trust in God, but also nearly every person that's mentioned that we recognize from the first six, six verses has some very significant flaws. You might say they're a cousin Eddie in the family line of Joseph. Even Abraham, who it starts out with in verse 2, we know boldly trusted God in certain situations, but nevertheless lacked significant faith with his poor bride, who he put on the line essentially to protect his own head. Jacob, his name means deceiver, does it not? And referring back to the time when he took his own twin brother Esau's birthright by tricking their father. That's not a real pretty family memory to bring back up at the holiday season. Going on down to uh, Judah, I I looked at this this week and I'll commend to you Genesis 36. I'm not going to turn there because it's so audacious, it's embarrassing to read probably here in mixed company gender and age-wise in our congregation. But take a look at Genesis 38. Judah, I'll give you a little bit of the breakdown. His uh, two sons who are not uh, listed here, let me get their names, Ur and Onan. There's a reason we haven't heard too much about them. They had been married to uh, Tamar one at a time, as was the custom. One died for uh, not walking with the Lord. Another died for disobeying the Lord in various ways you can read about in that chapter. And as was the custom in those uh, those times in ancient uh, Israel, the, the next son was supposed to take the place if the daughter-in-law was widowed. We see uh, Judah uh, failing to apparently offer up that youngest son. And then the story gets even more crazy as Tamar decides to take matters into her own hands, lacking a husband then that's supposed to be provided for her, and uh, dresses up as a woman of the night, 
Judah then, now widowed himself, uh, adds insult to injury in what he's already failed to do and pursues her. And it's from uh, that connection, if you will, that these two fellows listed here, Perez and Zerah, are listed. Perez carries on down the line. We won't even say too much about Rahab, who, of course, did trust the Lord in some bold uh, ways, but had an interesting past of her own. Ruth, we can't fault for any particular moral failings that we see, but she was definitely an outsider. She was a Moabitess. She wasn't part of the people of God and had to come in, you know, by profession of faith. She was welcomed in, but she was coming from the outside of the people. And then interesting, isn't it? That it camps out on David, and once again, right smack dab, just a few verses before some of our favorite Christmas passages, it takes time to remind us that Joseph's great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, David, it reminds us that Solomon had come by the wife of Uriah, not by David's own wife. Powerful message, isn't it? A sobering one for us as we think about our own family line. And maybe it takes place in this way in your family gatherings, little offline conversations, you know, over here with this or that uncle or this or that aunt. And the statement is made, yeah, that that young one's pretty unstable right now, that teenager. Oh, yeah, the the that fella in our family, he's a, he's a bit of a skirt chaser. Yeah, um, so-and-so niece, she's struggling with some addiction issues again. Yeah, he's, he's actually just gotten out of prison, believe it or not. He, he has. Yeah, she's, uh, she's got a pretty fierce temper. I've noticed that, too. She's pretty difficult that way. No, no, he's, he's not showing up to work anymore. Issues that we've uh, generally tried to sweep under the rug, but that tend to spill over onto the floor, don't they, even when we try. Well, Matthew makes sure that we see that we're not alone in this kind of family lineage. Joseph had it in his. And more importantly than that, it makes sure that we understand that Jesus has come into the world precisely to save and redeem this kind of lostness, this kind of brokenness, the kind that we have in our own hearts. Because somebody's probably at a family gathering over in the corner talking about what's going on in our lives as well. So we see our genealogy. Second thing we see in this passage is Joseph. And Joseph is interesting because we know almost nothing about him. You know, Mary has this whole uh, song that's kind of addressed to her, or a song that she has that's in Scripture. Uh, Joseph is very succinct, very little content about him. And so it's interesting to see what is said. Now we know that he's... Just like you and me today, he's, he's a, a person in need of redemption, in need of grace. He's not, some, he's not presented as any paragon of virtue or of grand faith. But we do see in this instance 
And this place in this crucial moment, in contrast to his family line, again, we don't know what other things he may have done, what other issues he may have had in his life and struggles in walking with the Lord. But in this instance, he's presented as a contrast to all that stuff that came before. Because he's in a tough situation, isn't he? He's betrothed, which is really uh, like a souped-up engagement, I guess you would say. It's almost almost married. You don't really normally back out of that. And so that's why, the, if you've ever wanted, that's why the passage talks about him uh, considering divorcing her quietly because you had to sort of legally sever this engagement. It was so uh, structured and formalized. And you understand his predicament. He doesn't understand where this child has come from. What does the Lord do? The Lord shows him grace and speaks into his life, speaks his word, just as God does for us in all kinds of places in our life. And God speaks through an angel and says, hey, Joseph, son of David. Interesting that he refers to him as the son of David there, I might add. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph makes me think about the part of Christmas that that challenges me in this way, not not only with the opportunity to worship and celebrate who Jesus is, uh, not only for the time to kind of maybe help lead our kids that way if we've got little ones, but also for the time that the reality that Christmas is a time for response, to respond to who Jesus is. That's what Joseph is really doing, is responding to a message about who Jesus is. And he raises for us this question. What are the places in our life when God has spoken to us, if you will, spoken to us through his word about who Jesus is and what he ought to mean for our lives and where we've been deaf instead of attentive and hearing? What are those places? It was interesting. um, I was thinking about that. Uh, just this morning in that struggle to really believe God's promises, trust and faith that he's at work in our lives and as, as he brings opportunities along. And I was over to the church office for my usual routine of prayer and kind of, you know, getting my final notes together and so forth before coming over here. And I walked out the front door to our office, loading a couple of the bins of stuff in, in my vehicle, and along came a fella from our neighborhood He's, uh, he's not from this country originally, and he and I have had conversations over the last two years here and there, hit and miss, about the things of Christ and the gospel. And there he was, out for a walk on Sunday morning. And it's actually not the first time I've seen him, but it's probably been six months since we bumped into one another. And it was amazing for me and incredibly disappointing for me to see my own response as he came along. And all I could really come up with, I tossed in one little, hey, it'd be great for you to come to church thing, but all I could talk about with him was yesterday's college football news. Right there, right there in front of me, an opportunity to say, hey, you know, it's 7.30 in the morning, so not just a general invite for you to come to church, but how about you go on home, wake up your wife, we know, you know, we know the whole family, get your little daughter up, you got two and a half hours time. Come on today, we'd love to have you. 
come and visit our worship time. Now, all I could do was chat about some other things, feel a little awkward even. I don't want to put too much pressure on him. You know, I know you don't believe it, but us pastors sometimes feel awkward, like we're putting too much pressure on people. And so I just backed off, went on back into my office, and I sat there for a little while. And I prayed for him and his family that God would do a work through what invitation I had given. But I thought, wow, that was a place where I wasn't really ready to trust God. I wasn't really seeing God moving in that situation. I didn't jump on it the way I should have or could have. Maybe there's places in your life that are like that. Joseph's a reminder to us that one of the ways we can break stride with our lineage, with our genealogy, is to just trust and believe what God says and walk in it by faith. Last thing we see is what these uh, verses, and now I'm moving on more into the meat of, of uh, our passage, beginning, I guess, in verse uh, 19, actually 18, and then going on down through 24. Some things we probably already have heard about at some point or thought about or maybe read about, about Jesus, and I just want us to see here how it is that he fixes the Cousin Eddie syndrome in the human condition, our flawed lineage that we contribute to as well. If you look with me at verse 18, it's interesting, two different places there and in verse 20 it is that the Scriptures tell us that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Again, what's, what's up with that? Is that just sort of a special thing? Is that interesting phraseology? No, the, the reason is this, that just like we read, what's the trajectory of, of Joseph's human side, that human side of his family? It's fallenness, brokenness, sin, need for redemption. That's what the trajectory is. So something's got to intersect and change that. Something powerful has to be done to redirect things, and only the Holy Spirit can do that the holy spirit's got to come in and in some way that of course we don't understand or can't fully comprehend that's what makes it one of the most monumental you know miracles of all time the holy spirit comes and is involved in conceiving jesus second thing we see about jesus here is what is told to Uh, Joseph about who Jesus is it says that he's going to be from the Holy Spirit she'll bear a son and you'll call his name Jesus that's got meaning that's the transliteration I guess you would say of the word Joshua which carries the idea of salvation so it's not just any sort of name but it's a name that carries tremendous meaning about rescue about redemption not only for Joseph and his family, but for the whole world. And it says there that he will save his people from their sins. And then verse 22, the third thing we see about Jesus. says, all this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the prophet. And it's talking back uh, here about Isaiah, going all the way back to the Old Testament. Remember, Isaiah is writing... 700 years plus before Jesus ever sets foot on the world. And, and he's giving us this message. 
That's an incredibly precise description of who Jesus would be in his birth. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they'll call his name Emmanuel. Now, you all know what that mean cause, means because it tells us right here, God with us. What a wonderful thing to know that God's with us right in the midst of whatever difficulties or issues we're facing in our life. And what an incredible thing to realize that Jesus has come. Jesus has come in a sense to remake the human condition. You know, it's uh, interesting uh, flipping through the channels on uh, cable TV. I've thought about recently just getting rid of the whole uh, cable thing, not so much for the negative content, although there's plenty of of that, and, and if it weren't for the, the sports, and boy, there's been some good sports on lately, hasn't there? You know, I'd be tempted to just get rid of the, the whole thing. In, in fact, I, I got to the point recently, my wife Patience is uh, highly skilled at reserving little movies that you can get through the Hoover Library. You can, like, log on, and they'll have them there waiting for you. That I decided to go deep in the repertoire to find some more interesting, more entertaining TV, going all the way back, baby, to the 70s. And if you're 35 years or older, you'll probably remember this. The rest of y'all will have to catch up. But there was a show called The Six Million Dollar Man. I won't ask for a show of hands of who remembers The Six Million Dollar Man. But the story goes like this. Uh, Steve is his name. He's nearly died in some sort of NASA test flight that he was involved in. His his whole body is damaged in, in, you know, virtually every way you can conceive and so the scientists and medical people decide that he's going to be a test case for the bionic man and they're going to replace most of his you know internal parts and limbs and so forth with uh, robotic things things that could somehow improve his condition and you know the show's a, a little bit odd i must say you know it's not just a uh, shirts that have a lot of exposed chest hair for the men or the very broad collars or the bell bottoms that they're wearing. You know, all those things threw me for a loop. But uh, but I did learn uh, two things in watching through a few episodes recently of The Six Million Dollar Man. Number one, current cable TV is not as bad as I thought it was. Number two, what happened to The Six Million Dollar Man is kind of what needs to happen to each one of us through Jesus' work. It's not just a minor correction. It's not just a mold that needs to be removed somewhere on the outside. Something needs to be changed completely on the inside and rebuilt. And the fact that Jesus comes into the world, conceived of the Holy Spirit, sent to save sinners, Emmanuel, God who is with us. And the scriptures put that just a few verses after a lineage that's horrific in its demonstration of human sin screams to us that we need this Savior. We need this one to rebuild us from the inside. Let's pray. Father, we... Thank you for sending Messiah. And we thank you that this one is 
is Jesus Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you would encourage us today as we think not only about the general condition of humanity or our particular family line, but about our own condition. We recognize, Lord, that it points us to the need for one, to provide rescue, provide redemption to save us. And we thank you that Jesus is that one. And we put our trust in him. And we pray that out of that would flow lives that are marked less by that genealogy we read and more by actions like we see, at least in this case, of Joseph. That we'd walk in faith and trust and deeper worship, deeper appreciation of you, of others that you've placed in our lives, that we'd respond to the gospel for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.